and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, broadcasting with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle, Washington. Today we have on the show with us Dr. Michael Egnor for one final podcast to talk about the debates that he's been having with Jerry Coyne, the University of Chicago evolutionary biologist. Dr. Egnor, you've been having debates with Jerry Coyne on evolution news and views for the past few months. And one of the topics we haven't gotten to yet that you've been debating him on is whether or not sort of a Christian worldview or a Judeo-Christian society helped to lead to the rise of science. What are your views on that? And is this potentially one of the rare issues where you have a little bit of agreement with Jerry Coyne? The rise of modern science, which really began in the 16th and 17th century with the scientific enlightenment, was really part and parcel of Judeo-Christian culture. Science had its foundations, classical philosophy and metaphysics, particularly that of Aristotle. And in the adaptation of Aristotle and the Greek philosophers by Aquinas and by Maimonides and other theologians in the uh, high Middle Ages, it was not until the scientific enlightenment that this all coalesced into what we would call modern science. And the definition of modern science differs somewhat from such things as engineering or mathematics. For example, many cultures have had excellent engineering. People have been building bridges for thousands of years. And mathematics, the Greeks excelled in mathematics. But the non-European cultures and the ancient cultures in Greece didn't have what we would think of as modern science. And in modern science is the application of theoretical models to the understanding of nature. It's taking a theoretical concept, usually it's a mathematical model, and applying it to nature and predicting what will happen in nature. And that's a peculiarly European Christian development. It really began with Galileo and with Newton and with Copernicus and has continued to this day. And the rise of modern science was intimately linked to a distinctly Christian understanding of natural philosophy. We take for granted a lot of the ways that we look at nature, the idea that nature follows laws, that nature is rational, that nature itself is not the ultimate reality, that there is a God beyond nature, and that it's worthwhile understanding nature. But those viewpoints are very specific to Christianity and to Judaism. They are not specific to, for example, animism and various kinds of pagan ideas, which viewed nature as irrational, they certainly aren't specific to pantheism, which is sort of is the view that all of nature itself is God, because if nature itself is God, then nature doesn't follow laws. Nature sort of is God. Nature is the whole thing. But the idea that there is a lawgiver who gives us a rational nature that we can explore and that's worthwhile exploring and that's consistent is very much a Christian idea. And it's no surprise that essentially all of the great scientists of the scientific enlightenment were Christians. And Rodney Stark, who's a historian and sociologist who studied Christianity and science at some length, has pointed out that if you look at a list of the great scientists of the scientific enlightenment, of Newton, of Copernicus, of Galileo, Kepler, Maxwell, of all these extraordinary scientists, that not only were they Christians, but they were exceptionally devout Christians. They were much more devout than the average person of their time. And of course, it was Christianity that gave us the modern university system. So the institutions in which they were developing this science came from Christian ideas. What is remarkable when you look at the history of science is the virtual absence of any systematic 
contribution by atheism. That is, when you look at what atheism has contributed to science, you get, instead of theory of gravitation and the Copernican model and Kepler's planetary motion and Maxwell's equations, atheism, their scientific accomplishment has been constructing gulags, constructing guillotines, and trying to get gag orders in biology class. So atheism's contribution to modern science as a philosophy, although some scientists are personally atheists, but they work in a Christian context. They work with what is intrinsically a theist Christian concept of what nature is, that nature is rational, predictable, logical, that nature is worth knowing. Atheist civilizations, and let's face it, we've, we've had a lot of atheist civilizations, particularly over the past century, a third of humanity was under the boot of state atheism, beginning with the Bolshevik Revolution. Atheist civilizations have produced a very, very little science. So if you, if you want to look at atheist science, take a look at North Korea. That's what atheist science is doing. So the idea that Coyne and some other atheists push that science is incompatible with religion and that the rise of atheism really has been the rise of science is historical nonsense. The reality is that the, the scientific enlightenment was a devoutly Christian project. And atheism, when you look at it carefully, has produced a very, very little science. Let's face it, if you really believe that everything happened for no reason, that there is no ultimate mind that is creating and sustaining nature, then why would you even bother to do science? Why even bother to look? So atheism is metaphysical gibberish, and it is not responsible for any meaningful science. What about eugenics? Has Darwinian materialism had another accomplishment and that perhaps it helped lead to the rise of eugenics? I know you've talked about this a little bit in your debates with Jerry Coyne. Eugenics is, is a scientific theory, and it's a scientific theory that is relatively straightforward. Its belief is that you can improve the genetic stock of mankind by breeding mankind like animals. So basically, it's the application of animal husbandry to human society. It was invented as a science in 1869 by Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's cousin, by the way. And Galton was deeply inspired by Darwin, who himself expressed some eugenic ideas in his book, Descent of Man, where he applied evolutionary theory to human beings. And Galton took his cousin Darwin's theory and asked a critical question. And the critical question was, because as he saw it, men evolved by a process of natural selection. That is, all of our desirable traits were the result of a brutal struggle for life, a brutal struggle to reproduce. The fact that we have a benevolent civilization would seem to lead to the degeneration of man. That is, because man was the product of natural selection, we were essentially a wild breed that was under domestication and was deteriorating because we were under domestication. If we were really nice to one another, if we helped the poor, if we helped people who were handicapped, if we helped cure people who had diseases, in a sense, according to Galton, we were fighting natural selection, and this would damage mankind. So what Galton and his eugenic successors recommended was that we had to take our own evolution in hand. We had to sort of do our evolution ourselves, and, of course, one of the options would just be to kill all the weak people. But Galton and his eugenic colleagues felt that was too cruel. 
So what they wanted to do instead was to segregate them or sterilize them. And the point was basically to take control of evolution. So eugenics, which was a horrendous program that in the United States resulted in the involuntary sterilization of 60,000 people and was the basis for Nazi eugenic programs that killed a quarter of a million of handicapped people throughout Germany in the run-up to World War II, and the Nazi eugenic program was probably the dry run for the Holocaust, where Nazis learned how to exterminate relatively large numbers of people. So eugenics was critical to the Nazi program. The whole program of eugenics originated and continued as a Darwinian implication, because, of course, if man is not an evolved animal, and it doesn't really make any sense to breed him, but if he is an evolved animal, then you can apply the principles of livestock management to human beings, which is what eugenics was. So eugenics is pure applied Darwinism, and it was one of the great crimes against humanity of the last century. Well, Dr. Egnor, we're coming to the end of this really enjoyable series of podcasts. I really want to command our ID the Future listeners to go check out many of Dr. Egnor's posts responding to Jerry Coyne over at Evolution News and Views. You've really been a one-man debate, keeping Jerry Coyne on his toes, Dr. Egnor, and so we want to just thank you for the service you've done to the community in this regard. It's a labor of love, Casey. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I have no doubt that it is. Well, Dr. Egnor, thanks for your time and thanks for coming on ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2014. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.